0: In today's issue of the New York Times, Shalom Auslander writes the following, In this time of war and violence, of oppression and suffering, I propose we pass over something else. Reference to the Passover, he said, and that is God. This is the New York Times, today issue. He goes on to write that God is hateful, full of brutality, and if he were mortal, he would be dragged into the Hague. Mr. Auslander's greatest flaw in his argument is his failure to consider the cross. <laughs> on the eve of the Passover, the Son of God identified with our oppression, our suffering, violence, hate and I would argue brutality, he not only identified with it, he bore the judgment for such actions. And that in so doing, he provides a means for all of us to be freed from the enslavement of sin. If the son of God was dragged into the Hague, Mr. Auslander, the only guilty verdict that could be rendered would be that he is guilty of loving the world and saving humanity from their sin. Father, we come to you tonight on this Good Friday. It's an evening with a flood of emotions. It's good because we're reflecting on the price that's paid for our sin, but it is a dark moment in history. Your son is sent to be inflicted with the greatest devised method of capital punishment known in human history, a crucifixion. Lord, guide us as we go to the text. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. We have several visitors with us tonight, or perhaps online. And we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke and you've heard three sections from the text of chapter 23 this evening. And it shouldn't surprise us, because as we move through this, you're going to see the theme of Jesus as the Savior. It's key to the Gospel of Luke. Again, it's, it's going to be stressed here in the text. And something unique is happening, and I want you to watch this as we go along. There's going to be three cries to Jesus, save yourself, irony it's just laced here in 23. Let's look at the text starting in verse 32 of chapter 23 of Luke's gospel. It says two other criminals were led away to be executed with him. Three times the term term criminals will be used. It's used here, it's used in the next verse and you'll see it in verse 39. That's significant. Because Isaiah 53:12, 700 and some years before Jesus comes on the scene, it states he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors or the criminals. And here he hangs, slain as a criminal yet truly innocent, which is going to be declared yet again in the text as we go. And Luke tells us that where it occurs is a place called the skull. And that's not because there are human skulls nearby in grave tombs, but rather it looks geographically. It looks topography, looks like a skull. It's a prominent hill that can be seen for miles. You must remember, crucifixion wasn't a private affair, (laughs) It, it was meant to terrify the masses. Rome had perfected death, prolonging it as long as possible with inflicting the greatest amount of pain as possible. Crucifixions were deterrents publicly. Don't mess with Rome or this will happen to you. That's why the crime was placed usually on the cross, on a placard. Here we see it's during the Passover season, which is typical of Roman uh, authorities. They would do it during festivals or big events so that, again, the crowds could see. And murderers, robbers, traitors were crucified brutally and always deliberately in full public view. The terror of the cross was inescapable. In fact, you'll find few references to crucifixion in ancient writings In the first century, it was a subject no one talked about. It happened all the time, no one addressed it. Domitian, later in the 80s of AD, will ban the first phase of crucifixion, which was the scourging, because it was so horrific. It's where we get our word excruciating. It it, it was horrific. And while hanging on the tree for these, these hours, Jesus will make several statements. And Luke gives us three of those. Notice in verse 34, he says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Uh, how how could they be ignorant? <laughs> what do you mean, Jesus, they don't know what they're doing? I mean, prophecy was given. They should have known, the religious rulers. This event was ordained by God. Four times in the gospel, we've seen Jesus predict that he's going to be crucified, along with numerous references that this would occur. So, why, why should they not know? Why should they be held innocent? Well, I think the ignorance is, is not out of a lack of knowledge, but an erroneous judgment about God's activity. What's more outstanding, I would argue, is not their erroneous judgment, but that Jesus is willing to extend forgiveness to the very end. Even to his mortal enemies here in the text, Jesus' love is still evident. And no, Mr. Auslander, our God is not a God of hate. Our God is a great God of love. Unconditional love in the sense that he would lavish this on him on us by going to the cross. We see in the text that while Jesus is extending forgiveness, the soldiers are like vultures circling around the cross, divvying up the belongings of the criminals. This was common, it happened frequently. But interestingly, in Psalm 22, another Old Testament text, Over a thousand years before Jesus, even before crucifixion ever occurred, it predicted, the psalm portrays the mocking suffered by the righteous and how they would divvy up the clothes of that one who was innocent. The text then takes us, Luke takes us to three individuals or groups. And I want you to watch this because each time they will declare to Jesus, save yourself. And with that comes a title they will ascribe to Jesus. The first of these is the religious rulers. This is in verse 35. The rulers. Luke doesn't even tell us or to assume this is the Sanhedrin. This is the, the priest. This is the Sadducees. These are the scribes. These are the ones who know better. <laughs> They're your theologians. They're the the frozen chosen, right? They're the ones who are supposed to know. And it says they ridicule. The word here is mock. The one who turns up their nose is the idea. Or or to sneer. And they rebuke him. Notice it's dripping with sarcasm here as they say, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the Meshua, if he's the, the promised one of David... But notice what else they say, the Christ of God, his, don't miss this, chosen one. If he's really God, then then let him save himself. But the, the problem with the religious rulers is that Jesus did not fit their mold. They wanted something vastly different than what Jesus was affording them. The soldiers, with nothing better to do, as they guard this victim, as they are there to ensure that he dies, along with the other two criminals, they also join in the mockery. Notice what it says. They also mocked, verse 36, coming up and offering him sour wine. You think, well, that's nice. That was a cheap substitute for water, and it was to quench the thirst. That wasn't out of nicery. (laughs) It was mockery. Let's prolong his life and also allow him to talk. Because if you're the king of the Jews, they state, save yourselves. They not only state it orally, it's also written on that placard, the king of the Jews. The religious rulers, Jesus didn't fit their parameter. For the soldiers, this is a farce. This guy's a charlatan. You can't be serious. You're following this one called Jesus. Really? Really? And then to add insult to injury, we have one of the criminals who was hanging there, and it says he also joins in the mockery. He says, aren't you the Christ? In the Greek, it's clear. He's saying, if you're Christ, which I don't suspect you are, but if you are, notice what he says, save yourself and don't, don't miss the next part, and us. <laughs> Bless his little pointed head. Right? I mean, don't miss this. Because he's a great contrast for the other. What is he looking to Jesus? He's looking for a a luck charm. You know, if you're really this one, hey, this is my chance to get out of here. But I'm not going to call you son of God. And and, and so, here you you have three different parties. One, Jesus doesn't fit the mold. Second, it's it's a charlatan. This is a joke. And the third, well you can get me out of jail free yeah then I'll you know I'll give you something in the process such thoughts are not confined to the first century (laughs) are they Mr. Shalom Auslander wants to say that God is one of hate that doesn't fit as well does it such thoughts today Jesus is a, a historical figure yes a nice guy, guru, rabbi, perhaps even a miracle worker. But he can't be the son of God, the savior of the world. That doesn't fit our paradigm. Luke is really clever because what he does as he lays out these three who call save yourself. He gives us now three individuals who say, yeah, you're the savior of the world. Don't miss this. The louse on the one side, the criminal is contrasted with the second in verse 40, and he rebukes the other criminal. Don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? It's interesting, twice this thief recognizes his sin, unlike the previous one. He recognizes that he needs to Repent. He recognizes that Jesus is innocent. And he calls on Jesus. Notice what he does. He calls on Jesus for salvation. Which implies he can give it. That's why I'm turning to him. Note the criminal does not ask to be exempted from his sin. He does not ask to be taken down from the cross. He's only talking about, I, I deserve this. I am a sinner. But save me in the afterlife wow what faith <laughs> one, one scholar writes some saw Jesus raise the dead and did not believe the robber sees him being put to death and believes isn't that great and despite the taunts Jesus can and does save just ask the criminal and so Jesus provides assurance to this thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. There's another who testifies to Jesus' role as Savior. And I would argue this is God the Father. And he does this in a couple ways. One is darkness. Notice the text says in verse 44, it's, it's noon. It's in the middle of the day. And yes, we're in April, approximately, in Palestine, at noon. It's bright and sunny. Uh, But here we see darkness comes. It's clear until three in the afternoon. It says the sun's light failed. I mean, clearly this is a supernatural event. Darkness is key because throughout Scripture it's seen as part of God's judgment. But in a Greco-Roman world it was seen that when a great person dies it gets dark. It just—it's laced, and here the father is—is verifying. I would argue this is my son. And you see another thing that happens: the temple curtain is torn. This is huge. Don't skip over this. This curtain—that Babylonian tapestry that hung from the holy place to the holy of holies—Josephus said it took three hundred priests to hang. It's the thickness of a man's palm. He tells us, it's enormous. it's ripped asunder what in the world what's going on certainly you could argue it's a sign of judgment upon Judaism the temple because it's no longer necessary others argue instead it's 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 giving us access to the very presence of God himself (laughs) the Lord opens it up and now we have a high priest who's Christ who takes us into the very throne room and in this process, Jesus makes another statement Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's quoting Psalm 31, another Old Testament text. This psalm is one of a prayer of a righteous sufferer who wishes to be delivered from his enemies and expresses assurance that God will fulfill it. We well, could spend all evening unpacking that text. It's loaded. The intimacy of the Son with the Father. Etc., and after he said this, he no one took Jesus' life, he breathed his last. And so, you have the criminal who testifies that Jesus is the one who saves, the father demonstrates that in these events that occur. And there's one more, and of all places, a Gentile. Luke's a Gentile, he's writing to a Gentile to show them, Hey, this is true. What I'm giving you, and here's how we as Gentiles can be brought into this fold. But notice what the text says, a centurion. This is a Roman official. Centurion was in charge of a hundred soldiers. Saw what had happened, he praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent. Most English versions have the word innocent. It can also be translated as righteous. The NIV has righteous the Luther, German Luther Bible has "from," which is also righteous is how they're rendering it there's more to this than he wasn't guilty <laughs> it's laced with Christological overtones don't miss this the idea that he's innocent draws us immediately to Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant who is innocent but who suffered for his people in Isaiah 53, you say, oh, it's not quoted here. It, it's, it's referred to countless times in Luke's gospel, especially in chapter 23. And the term is used, innocent or righteous, in three times in the book of Acts, Luke's second volume. It's clear. This is the one who is the suffering servant, who is the righteous one. But there's more to it, I would argue, Centurions occur three times in Luke-Acts. The first is in chapter 7. Remember chapter 7? His slave is healed and and all of that. And what does Jesus say about that centurion? I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Hmm. The centurion, this one we see in 23. The next one we find in Acts chapter 10. His name is Cornelius. And he is praised as well. The centurion uh, from Acts 10 says, it was Peter who states this, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. What do you have? Three centurions demonstrating that Gentile leaders can place their faith in Christ. Luke is showing, look, this gospel isn't just for the, 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 the Jew, it's also for the Gentile. And by the way, Luke is showing throughout his narrative, as we have seen, this gospel is for everyone. It's for those that are on the margins of society, those in the up and coming, the down and outers. This gospel is for all. But there's one other thing that I would argue that this is a Christological significance. It's not just that he declares him righteous, and I think the overtones to Isaiah 53. It's not just the use of the centurion. But notice what he does in verse 47. He praises God. Now, (laughs) why would you praise God for a guy who's innocent who's dying? That seems rather sadistic, does it not? And, And praise is significant in Luke's gospel. It occurs Six times in reference to God working through Jesus, moving through him. As noted by one scholar in this reference to how could he consciously praise God for executing an innocent person, the Roman soldier sees more than the death of an innocent martyr, but recognizes the salvific hand of God at work in Jesus. It's how the, the word praise is used every time in Luke Acts the reference to praising god indicates the centurion's willingness to submit to god and grasp the significance of who jesus really is it's an indictment upon the religious rulers as well save yourself oh he can ask the one criminal ask the father ask the centurion the crucifixion extinguishes human opinion thoughts or feelings. This is not a postmodern moment, an opportunity for us to pontificate on what we think about this one called Jesus. No, the cross serves as a reality check and a time of decision. If we are wrong about who hung on that tree and why he hung on that tree, then we are ruined forever. Puritan writer J.C. Ryle wrote, The sum of all our hopes must be that Christ has died for us. Give up that doctrine, and we have no solid hope at all. It's the time for us to come to grips with who truly was crucified on Calvary. It's not some sadistic God, one who is full of hatred and brutality, as one argued today in a newspaper. No. (laughs) It's Jesus, who is Christ, our Savior, and our Lord. And that is why it is called Good Friday. (laughs) Father, thank you for your word. In it we read the great truth that your Son Jesus loves us so. You entered time and space. You took on our sin and you bore it the penalty on the cross. Thank you. As John records Jesus stating, It is finished. And we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I thought it would be good this evening to take some time to evaluate our own lives in light of the cross. Have you come to accept this Jesus as Savior Or are you like one of the groups that we saw, that Jesus just doesn't fit your paradigm? (laughs) You need to come to grips, because there is a life beyond this grave, and there's life even now, that Christ offers to those that's rich and full, who have a relationship with him. That also, he offers eternal security, paradise. And so similar to the thief, you need to come to grips with your own sin. And this communion is not for you until you do that. Because this is a remembrance of what Christ has done for us. For those of you who do know Christ, it's easy for the the empty tomb to eclipse the cross. And what I mean by that is we can forget the gravity of our own sin. easy, isn't it? To be consumed by life and its busyness. The cross fades into the background. It might be a piece of jewelry <laughs> or hung on a wall, but we forget the incredible price that was paid. Let's spend some time just reflecting on our own lives and where we are in our relationship with Christ, and then we will take of the communion. we could agree, I guess, without slander, is that you are brutal, and that you allowed your Son to take on our sin, (laughs) the perfect Lamb. Father, we thank you, because according to 2 Corinthians, because he did that, we can be seen as righteous, those who've placed our faith in Jesus come to grips like that thief that we are a sinner and there is nothing we can do apart from your grace and your mercy and so father we thank you and we praise you in Jesus name amen Jesus took the, the bread he knew full well what was about to transpire He's going to be betrayed. His disciples would scatter like cockroaches with a light. <laughs> He'd be left standing alone. And mocked. Mocked. The Son of God? <laughs> I to have struck them dead. But no. Because he was there to give his life a ransom for many. So that's why on that night when he took the bread, and he broke it. He gave thanks. Because he said, this is my body which is for you, this do in remembrance of me. Same way he also took the cup, symbol of the blood. And he was to shed much in that next 24 hours or less. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this at, often as you do it. Do it in remembrance of me. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. The one who willingly went and breathed his last Father, thank you for Good Friday because with the declaration, it is finished. There's a resounding amen that awaits Sunday morning. And we thank you that this isn't the end of the story. The reason he goes through this is to not only have victory over sin, but over death. And we praise you in the name of our precious Savior who not only saved himself, but is able to save us, and we thank you in Jesus' name.